Cape Talk. Plan B with Rebecca Davis. Afternoon, officially, Rebecca. Afternoon, John. I think it's important before we start to give an update on last week's discussion regarding the Australian man who was claiming that being farted on was workplace harassment. I was asked earlier this morning what the Supreme Court yes. appeal of appeal judgment on that was. No dice, John. No dice. I'm afraid that the, the complaint against Mr. Stinky... As un- upsetting as it might have been, was not ruled as workplace harassment warranting, what was it, several million um, Australian dollars. So you, you can no longer take that forward to your work as a claim to be used in future CCMA cases. Apologies. Oh, dear. On to something considerably more serious. Xenophobic slash criminal violence, KwaZulu-Natal, so on. Yes, and not just KwaZulu-Natal. Seems there have been out, outbreaks in at least two or three provinces. So the issue is, John, that we know that politicians in this country have a really, you know, just awful track record of making reckless statements about xenophobia. It's election season, and almost every party has been just staggeringly hypocritical in its approach to this issue in one breath you know, condemning foreigners using this kind of dog whistle rhetoric and in the next something happens and suddenly everyone's united against xenophobia and the rest of it. But it also strikes me that there has to be a way for us as a society to have kind of open discussions where people are allowed to voice concerns about immigration without being reflexively shot down for xenophobia. Let me give you an example. I think it was last year that uh, Zuelan Zimavavi tweeted his concern about the fact that he could see foreign nationals flooding the market with very cheap foreign goods. And he was worried about the effect this was happening on South African industry. And he was immediately condemned for xenophobia. And that to me is an example of something that we should, we need to have discussions about in a constructive and in a constructive way that makes people feel heard, but also debunks some of the myths around it. And that's exactly what our politicians aren't doing. That when they are talking about immigration, about foreign nationals, if anything, they're just fueling the myths. The Freedom Front Plus, for instance, this week put out a statement essentially saying that xenophobic violence would continue as long as South Africans kept losing jobs to foreign immigrants, which is just, you know, that really is a myth because it's been shown that the majority of jobs taken by foreign nationals are precarious, informal, and the rest... And there's also research which suggests that they're net creators of jobs, that they employ South Africans, granted, in not particularly great and well-paid and um, reliable jobs, but they do employ. And that's another thing, John. That's something we never talk about really is, you know, successful foreign nationals. And partly I suppose that's because we don't want to, you know, fuel resentment towards foreigners. But there is this sense that the South African media is responsible for only really talking about migrants and immigration in context of xenophobic violence. There's a fascinating piece by the Wits migration expert Lauren Landau last year where she made the point that journalists and civil society in South Africa are responsible for creating a kind of victim narrative around migrants where they really play up heroic migrants who've been through so much, got here against the odds, are feeding the family. As a result, they sometimes overlook unsavory aspects of migrants' history or criminal activities, and again, with the best intentions to avoid feeding anti-foreigner rhetoric. But it kind of reduces migrants to caricatures, and it's unhelpful in terms of having a wider social conversation about 
immigration because they uh, and, and, and the u.s i mean is a prime example of this the way donald trump is talking about something which is a very real issue the migrant caravans coming from central america the number of people that are in those and those people coming into particular states of the united states of america that has an impact that is something that has to be dealt with and people have legitimate or illegitimate fears and anxieties and prejudices about that and to reduce it to the level of a national emergency or to reduce it to the level of just let's bang Trump because of his xenophobic views and you get nowhere with these important discussions that need to be had. That's exactly right and one of the suggestions is that Trump's victory is explicable partly because Democrats were too anxious to to broach the topic of immigration and people as a result felt unheard, that they felt they had legitimate anxieties about immigration and jobs and the economy and the rest and they felt like these were being just dismissed or pushed down by Democrats. So we have kind of the opposite problem here where politicians are talking about immigration but in an irresponsible manner. I'd just like to see a middle ground where people can feel heard in their concerns at the same time as we debunk the myths around it and give a more accurate picture of what's actually going on. It it seems it seems a long way away. It does. And of some of the manifesto promises made by the parties in terms of how yeah. they're going to deal with this are ridiculous. You know, one of the ANC's proposed solutions is that they're going to work with other African countries to provide incentives to keep African people outside South Africa in their countries. I mean, what does that even mean? Are you going to put an end to war? South Africa has a really bad track record of intervening successfully on the com- continent in cases of conflict. So that's just vague nonsense. And I suppose with uh, the election just one day fewer than five weeks away now, there's a lot of politicking going on, and the ANC has sort of done some heroic miscommunication (laughs) (laughs) around who Cyril Ramaphosa is going to be meeting with tonight. But it started out as a meeting with his white brethren. That's right. Yesterday, a, a, a strange statement from the ANC announcing that Cyril Ramaphosa will be in conversation with our white counterparts, later described also as our white compatriots, as part of our continuous sectoral dialogues. Now, the obvious question raised by anyone with half a brain was, who, who, who are you referring to? Who have you chosen to represent the entire 8 million white population of South Africa there? And it was also pointed out, legitimately, I think, that if he had said we're engaging with you know, the coloreds or the Indians as this homogenous group, people would have been pretty offended. So they since retracted that statement, then they brought it back, and now they've given a slightly more fudged statement about who he's going to be meeting with, which I think are actually just business people. Um, but it does, first of all, it's a clear indication that that the ANC are, are worried about white votes. Karine Duplessis has an article on the Daily Maverick about that at the moment. Apparently, particularly in Gauteng, this is becoming a point of concern for them. But it did raise the question, John, of who would the white population accept as a representative to Cyril Ramaphosa? Who would you want to send as your designated white? You asked me that question in an email, which is four four hours ago that that email reached me, and I've been thinking about it seriously, and I I can't. I mean, I... Okay, let me be flip. Let me be, you know, let's choose Steve Hoffmeyer. Um, But I I really can't... it, It wouldn't be a politician. Mm. Um, who, then who would it be? A business person? An activist? Uh, a religious leader? Uh, a writer? A who? 
I was do you have any sort thinking, of vaguely serious clear no, ideas? No, I have no serious suggestions. I have two unserious suggestions, one of which is Jay something from Mikasa, and the other one is Janine, what's her name, the captain of Banyana Banyana, because I think I can say, without fear of contradiction, they're probably two of the least hated white people in South Africa. Other than that, I'm at a loss, but I would be curious to hear from your listeners who they would accept as a representative on behalf of whiteness. Yeah, I really did spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I couldn't even decide, yeah, on, on a sort of category of person. Mm. I think I came closest to going an activist of some sort, not not a an activist in anything approaching a... Um, a party political sense, but then an activist in what sense? A community activist, it's interlinked with politics in such a way. So, mm. yeah. Mark Haywood, it's, Section 27. Perhaps. <laughs> Except he's a foreigner. He is. He's a bloody foreigner. There we foreigner. go again with your xenophobic rhetoric. There we are. I mean, it is. And, and of course, there's the, the larger question of um, the homogeneity or otherwise of white people. That's right. And apparently it's not just the NC who's worried about white votes. The DA internal polling suggesting that white voters may be moving towards parties like the Freedom Front Plus, like the ACDP, which is reportedly the reason why Helen Ziller has just been taken out onto the campaign road. And apparently Tony Leon is soon to follow. So definitely some anxiety there from the DA as well. A couple of people have suggested me, which I think is an incredibly John. bad suggestion. <laughs> Chester Missing, um, Barry Rue, Helen Ziller, John Steenhazen. They're, they're a little, sorry, this is not not meant to be personal, but they're a little lacking in imagination. They're the too, also in a way so too far. contentious, you know, those, those figures. You'd want someone to be generally acceptable. Johnny Clegg. I mean, the poor man's sick. Give him a chance to rest. He can't be going to Lutuli House now. Yeah. Cheeky Watson. <laughs> <laughs> That's a sporting figure, I take it. Cheeky Watson? Yeah, well, he's one of the. He's Gavin. He's Gavin oh, Watson that, of Bosasa's brother. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could we not give someone like Tuli Madonsela temporary white status? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Fergie from Big Brother. I think you mean Ferdy, wasn't his name? His name Ferd was Ferdy. Ferd not Ferdy. Saw him in airport last Ferdinand year. Ferdinand Ravi, did you? Starstruck. Jane Dutton, and looks sent by somebody who looks a bit like Jane Dutton. <laughs> Hi, Jane. <laughs> Where are you? <laughs> okay. All right, and then let's finish. Let's finish talking. I read that article that you sent me um, a link to on artificial intelligence mm. and super intelligence and the danger of super intelligent computers becoming so super intelligent that I think, what the heck do we need people for? And, and you know, let's use human bodies to make paper clips out of. Mm. I, yeah, <sighs> that man, by the way, the, the man who co-founded um, Skype, he spent many weeks in Cape Town. He, really? He booked into one of our luxury hotels for two weeks and liked it so much that he stayed several months. Interesting. So he's yeah. one of the talent. He's one of the, the main people funding research into AI. And there is this kind of scaremongering at the moment in certain sectors. Unfortunately, in sectors, you probably know what they're talking about because it seems like tech moguls are particularly worried, the likes of Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, about what the rise of artificial intelligence could do to our future, the planet. And I, I personally tend to think some of this is overblown, particularly for where we are now. But I have a personal interest in collecting the creepiest stories of what AI is now capable of doing. And the one detail from this long article, which is available on The Guardian, it's originally from Popular Science, was the story that in 2013, a programmer named Tom Murphy designed an AI that could teach itself video games. And it was playing... Tetris, it had taught itself, and it was so determined not to lose that it simply pressed pause 
and kept the game frozen forever. Isn't that smart? The creepiness of this, of course, is that it suggested that one way to handle AI would be to have a switch off, a, a giant button that would effectively shut down AI globally. But the, what that, that Tetris playing AI suggests is that they would simply find a way around it. They'd say, I'm not going to lose this game. They don't want to lose, John. <laughs> Nor do we, Rebecca. Nor do we. <laughs> Trevor Noah, Peter Dirk Ace, Ivo Vechter, um, Jonathan Jansen. Um, that's somebody saying it was like Jonathan Jansen. Are my, yeah. Are Greeks and Portuguese classified as. Greeks and Portuguese people have already met with, Hel- with Cyril last week as part of the Hellenic Italian Portuguese Association. So we're yeah, going to have to pick uh, someone. And with the, with the initialized HIP. That's right. I wish. Hi, I'm a member of the hip community. <laughs> you look pretty old-fashioned to me. No! Hellenic! <laughs> oh, dear, it's not funny, is it? Um, yeah. Um, English white or Afrikaans white, the two don't get along. You see, I mean, these bizarre things that people say, people are saying. I mean, you can understand Barbara Hogan that. to represent whiteness. I suppose that in the end you realize what this, the ANC communication department must have been grappling with there when trying to... Yes, who do we invite? Their they probably well. invited the likes of, I don't know, Adrian Gore and those sorts of business leaders, probably, who they invited. Well, let's keep a close look on that list. Okay, go off. Off you go. Play Petrus and make... <laughs> make Tetris. And, and make paper clips. Rebecca Davis, thank you very, very much indeed.